Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city on tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was, and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast, the official podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. This is episode 85, where we'll be taking you back to the Mickey Mouse Review and talking about its two locations where it played for many years. And uh, I'm your host, Todd McCartney, and sitting in with me as always for this episode is Coming in from Ohio, back to school, J.T. Cousier, the most wonderful time of the year, as the, some of those commercials say, right? It, it is for the people that send their kids off to us, I think, <laughs> that's for sure. But yeah, we're back. Uh, I like going to extinct attractions that uh, I, I've never even, I wasn't even born when this left the park, so. I never got to see it. I think Howe is probably the only one here that actually got to see it, but we'll find out more details later. Yeah. And speaking of how, let's introduce him. Welcome to the show, How This is your episode, written, produced, edited, and created by Hal Bowers. So how you doing tonight, Hal? From Good. The, uh, from your local, your local Manatee Preservation Society right in your own backyard now. That's right. We, we, uh, we got them hanging out all the time. Can we send you some cabbage or romaine or anything? I've, you know, you're not supposed to molest them, so I've, I don't go and feed uh, them or, you know, give them water or anything, which they, they but... We just enjoy looking at them. Give them water where they on land. <laughs> I know for some, there's this thing. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the deal is, but if you turn on like a fresh water source, yeah, it's like they will come over to it and just like sit there and kind of like drink out of the hose. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really? As it drips down into the water. Well, I suppose if you're drinking salt water all your life, a nice fresh yeah. glass of, uh, of Tampa water would from the Tampa water system would be wonderful. We're brackish here, so I guess the, the fresh water is a nice change for them. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And wearing his orange bird shirt tonight, coming in from Philadelphia area, Mr. Brian P. Miles. How are you, Brian? I am also attracted to fresh water as opposed to brackish water. <laughs> so if you turn it on in your in your yard, I may show up and drink it. Brian's just out there in all fours at the sprinkler. <laughs> I'm doing well, and it's great to see and hear everyone. That's right. That's right. We have all been very busy getting ready for Retro Magic uh, coming up in fall of uh, 2023 here in just a few short weeks. We're approaching almost the 30-day mark, which is hard to believe. Uh, so if you're listening and you're coming to Retro Magic, can't wait to see you. If you're listening... We do not have any more seats left, so I'm sorry to report that, but we're very excited that we've got a complete sellout, as always. Um, it's going to be an awesome time, so the team here is very busy, but we wanted to get another episode in the books before we get to Retro Magic, because we are really in crunch time now in the next 30 days putting this all together. So, uh, But before we start, we always go over to the listener mailbag, and uh, JT, you... Uh, what you have? You, you were really busy last month with the DVC feedback, 
Uh, so what did we, what did we have this, this, this month coming in? So I dug back a ways cause I wanted to get into some, some people we might've missed or, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. I like, so the, it's not feedback on DVC feedback. No, this <laughs> yeah. is, this is just right out of, you know, the good old fashioned mailbag. Sure. And, yeah. uh, you know, if you're somebody that, uh, sent us a message and you didn't get on, well, this, this might be you. Like, I mean, this one, this first one here is from November of last year. Uh, this is from Julius. Uh, Julius has a question, and I'm sure you guys can talk about this. And I'm I'm kind of staying on brand here for some things that are upcoming. Uh, Julius is curious about the radar dishes you'd see, the big satellite dishes at Epcot. Oh yeah, those were grand. Uh, want, oh, yeah, wanted to know what they were used for and when they were taken down. Like what data actually came and went through these. Just kind of curious on the uh, the point of them. Was it was it all for show? Like Hollywood Studios, you know? Was it a fake <laughs> camera? Fake camera, right? right. Yeah, I, I, this is why I think you guys love Epcot so much because, as far as I know, they were real, weren't they? They were. They were. Uh, if I recall correctly, and I know how will correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, they were real satellites there. I believe there are two of them. They were tuned into a number of different channels. And over by Smart One, there was a communication area where you could see some different television channels uh, being pulled in via satellite. I can't recall if they had stock market updates or news, uh, uh, how you might remember it better. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was over so by Smart One, though, if I recall it, it was It was over by the... Um... By the future, it was part of the Future Choice Theater um, yes. pre-show area. Right, as we're right, waiting right. to go in, and they That's had right. the smart one was over. The you could you could see news from around the United States and from around the world, which at that time via satellite, which at that time was still relatively uh, new. And then those satellites dishes could also be used as uplinks, uh, besides the downlinks, so that if you filmed a show at Walt Disney World and you needed to upload it to satellite in order to broadcast it. Um, they could do that for you there as well. Is that how we're broadcasting Retro Magic coming up? Or <laughs> that is out there. That's how we're going to do it. We're going to that's <laughs> just drag a long ass cable over to to the Yacht Club. <laughs> yep. I knew that everything was strategic in this location that Brian chose. We meant to do that. So, yeah. Shortcut. The question is: Did you know anyone growing up who had one of those large satellites in their backyard? Oh I my did. gosh! Remember those? They were like four feet wide. Yeah. Four or five feet. They're usually black, like a mesh. Sometimes That's exactly. Uh, yeah. Frank Fazio, who I went to high school with, was a year ahead of me in high school. Uh, loved going over to Frank's house because they had this giant satellite uh, in their backyard that his dad obviously used to watch, I don't know, Chicago Blackhawks games directly from a Chicago feed or something like Like You always had this like thing like, they, oh, they could watch anything. I don't ever remember watching anything at Frank's house because in Frank's basement, <laughs> in Frank's basement, they had they had a real Miss Pac-Man machine and, oh. and like a full like air hockey table. And an, I feel like he had more than just Miss Pac-Man down there. But Frank's parents had some disposable we, we, income. We were only ever in Frank's basement that I remember. I don't ever remember watching <laughs> anything on TV there. I was going to say the whole deal with those satellite dishes is that if you could, you could aim it at the satellite. Yeah. And when they first came out, there was no, there was nothing to block you from being able to receive the right, signal. No scrambling right. or anything. So you could get open. HBO. So you could literally get any channel, anything on it for now free. Wait a second. Back then there was no, like, was there like a satellite in the air beaming TV yeah, to people? Yeah, like, absolutely. 
No, I mean, it wasn't beaming to people. It was beaming from station to station for rebroadcasting got over it. the cable. Okay, so you so, were... Yeah, you were intercepting the signal. I right. see. So right. HBO was putting it, transmitting it to a satellite, which would then take it down to your local cable company, who would then take it and put it in Via the cable, cable. and shove it to your yeah. So you're going exactly. around the cable company by patching into that directly. So yeah. basically, this was a, honey, this is going to pay for itself in like two years type right. investment. Yeah, right. exactly. All exactly. we need to do is have a four-foot satellite dish in the backyard. <laughs> I recall them being way bigger than four I mean, feet, they like seemed six huge, or eight right? feet across. Like, yeah, yeah, I was at least four. I mean, maybe they were closer to six to eight, but they, they were they were big. And you drive by, you'd see people in their backyard. That now, did you have to re like like move it? Like, like okay, I got HBO this way. Did I have to like tweak it you, south to get another you station? Would. You would have to yeah. aim at different satellites to Depending on which thing oh, we want to pick up, what a job! Yeah, now, if we let's dial the clock back a little further, I remember we had some friends. We had cable TV, and then they moved, and they moved to this location. It was a little more rural, and they didn't have cable TV yet. So we went over to their house once, and they didn't have a satellite dish, but they had an aerial on the roof. And he's like, "Oh, hold on, we have to turn the dial to just between." E and S between East and South to pick up that station. And he would sit there, this con- they had the controller next to the TV. And you'd turn the knob and a motor up on the roof would rotate the aerial antenna to pull in the best thing. We had so, that when I was a kid. You had that too? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that, that was the first thing. And then you satellite was the same thing where you just, had to, had to Just so it. you know, all of yeah. this we're describing was part of the plot of Wayne's World. <laughs> where they were going to aim the satellite that's, that's at Frankie right. Sharp's limousine so that he could see Tia Carrere's band, uh, Crucial Taunt, play and want to come and sign them to a record contract. Okay. First, I'll access a secret military spy satellite that's in a geosynchronous orbit over the Midwest. Then, I'll ID the limo by the vanity plate Mr. Big and get his approximate position. Then, I'll reposition the transmitter dish in the remote truck to 17.32 degrees east. Hit West Star 4 over the Atlantic, bounce the signal down here to the Azores, up the Comstat 6, beam it back to SATCOM through transmitter number 137, and down to the dish in the back of Mr. Pig's limo. It's almost too easy. I'm actually looking at Google Maps here, like Google Satellite View, to see if the old satellite is still in their backyard. Oh, oh my God. house. Because, like, so. You know, who who digs it out? Like, for what purpose do you have to rip it out until you sell the place? And apparently it was, yeah, it was something called C-Band, I guess, is what it was. I'm sure we have a listener out there that can come on next next month and give us a Well, it seemed like in the 90s, there was always one of those randomly in a backyard and, you know, usually parked next to it. It was like an early 80s Camaro or Trans Am that was rotting away, you know, Absolutely. like just, a, just the, the typical. People, and the people almost very likely owned a reptile. In a in a, in a in a in a glassic tank. I don't know, know, just like, a, just a specific type, but yeah, that's all right. Here you go for it. So, in nineteen, this is this is this is amazing, guys. In nineteen seventy nine, the satellite dish was listed in the Neiman Marcus catalog. Oh, how much? How much do you think? Now that was way back. And this is the open air C band, was wireless signals that would pick up. Um, in nineteen seventy nine. It was thirty six thousand dollars. Wow! Happened. Get out of here. By nineteen eighty one, it was down to three thousand, and nineteen eighty five, the price came down another half to fifteen hundred dollars. 
in just six years. It came down from 36000 to 5000 Okay, hold on. I got to run the inflation calculator on $36,000. Yeah. Well, even if I got the 85 one at $1,500. That's, that's equivalent to about 4200 bucks today, which is... There you go. To get to get like four free channels, that's, that's quite a bit. Did you say it was thirty two thousand dollars? It's thirty yeah, thirty six. Thirty six thousand dollars in nineteen seventy okay. Thirty six like house. That is a hundred and forty eight thousand dollars today. That's just uh Gordon Gecko bought it and that was Jeez. it. So this is interesting. There was a salesman in Columbia, South Carolina. Um and uh, he said that a certain percent of those people who bought dishes in the early days were the daredevil types. They got a thrill out of taking something away from HBO. Sure. You knew, but you knew it wouldn't last. In fact, there's a screenshot here that when they started scrambling, it would say, good evening, HBO. Um, $12.95 a month? No way. Oh, that was Captain Midnight, right? Or Captain, <laughs> Captain Goodnight? Captain Midnight. Yeah, exactly. That was, that was, when, that was a, famous, uh, a famous occurrence. Exactly. Unfortunately, the Fazios sold their house in 2000 or 2001, according to the internet. So I'm sure the uh, the satellite dish was removed by then. They mounted a DirecTV dish on top of it, and that's. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You're right. That was the next. Uh, yeah. The next step in that, and wasn't it? All right. Well, I'm going to move on from Julius. You guys can keep. Uh, so let's just let's just tell him the Captain Midnight thing. Brian, do you want to you want to go over what happened? This was in 1986. Well, the guy hijacked the signal. He yeah. You know, and what was it? The New York area, right? Or was it or was it the entire uh, HBO? I think it was the New York area. I think it was the tri-state might have been, area yeah. around New York, it, and he used his technical know-how to get in there and yep. drop a video screen over the HBO signal that attacked HBO for for charging twelve ninety five a month. Right. He got a $5,000 fine probation. It was before the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act became law in October 1986. So, How'd they find him? Uh, it says through a process of elimination, basically. They, uh, they, they were able to... There were only so many satellites out there that were able to... that were possible to stop HBO signal. <laughs> so they, they looked were... up all the Captain Midnight's in the phone book and called them all <laughs> one by one. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's great. Uh, so um, if you're, this is funny, odds are that if you live in West Virginia, you might still have one. They were so popular there that they were jokingly called the official state flower. Um, uh, uh, you, yeah. can, you can you can now you reuse your C-band dish as a solar-powered water heater, um, and you can turn them into a birdbath or a small pond. So there you go. It, still it, got one. It would make sense, though, because cable television didn't know, come only, there. only worked. No. When there was a condensed population, right, uh, of people, a concentration of people living in one place, and so people until the advent of you know JT, you mentioned Direct TV and some of these other smaller, which are prolific uh, when mm -hmm. you drive through rural areas. I mean, it seems like every house has a has a you know a Direct TV uh, dish on it. Or Prime Star back then. Yeah, or what, yeah, yeah, any of those services that, you know, because cable just wasn't available. And right. even around here, like, they wouldn't run it. I remember it was a big thing. They, they would not run it to, like, residences that were set back. One of them, our church rectory, or the, the, the convent and the rectory of our church, uh, which is on a major road. But it, because they are not surrounded by any residential neighborhoods, they were just... Comcast refused to wire them for cable. Like, no, we're just not going to spend the money to delay the game. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, 
the 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 town council here, the board of supervisors, they had a like a hearing on there were like a hundred residents who just Comcast would come in every three years for their licensing. And they would just say, no, we're not going to, it's not, it's not worth it for us to run it to these people. And like, it was a real, like came to fisticuffs almost between the elected officials and Comcast because Comcast was so belligerent about it. Yeah. And then Verizon came along, shoved it it up their batuti with Fios. That's right. Oh wow, that's a this is a this is a hoot to go down this path. I didn't think we were. Yeah, there'll be there'll be a whole cable television panel at uh, Retro Magic. Right. Yeah. Exactly. We'll get Ted to help out. Yeah, Ted on TV. Yeah. 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 It's his specialty. How do we know he wasn't Captain Midnight? Hmm. Ted, if you're listening, Ted Linhart, you let us know if you met ever met Captain Midnight. (laughs) He probably in the right area. He ran the investigation to find him. He may have. All right, next up, here we go. Brian, you actually uh, reached out to this person. This is back in November of last year. Um, this is Ross. Ross had a question that's actually uh, kind of, we'll say, uh, current with what's going on at Epcot. He says, sometimes between 2006 and 2010, he recalls a character meet and greet with Figment at Epcot. It was indoors in a detached facility near the entrance to Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. Perhaps it was actually farther away from Imagination in an area now used for festivals. I wish I had the photos, but I have not been able to locate them. For years, friends refused to believe that my family and I met human adult-sized Figment character in Epcot. He says that is until the D23 Expo announced that there's an upcoming Figment coming. Can you share any details on this late 2000s Figment meet and greet? I can. Uh, They took Figment out of the ride when they did Journey into Your Imagination in the 1999-2000 redo that was awful and stoked the ire of fans everywhere. And so the response was to immediately redo the ride and put figment in every single scene and put out a ton of figment merchandise like this odd mouse pad that I have. And I mean, figment was on everything and they started this fig what jokingly gets called figzilla, uh, this human sized figment meet and greet. And the area where Figment met was between the Imagination Building and the Captain EO slash Pixar Film Festival today. It has been used in recent years for the Disney Chase Visa uh, exclusive character meet and greet area. But that is where Figment's uh, meet and greet was held from 2003 or so until around 2009, I want to say it was, 2009 or 10. And Figment was removed, and yes, Figment is coming back, and yes, I have confirmed with people in the know that the by the time this airs, Figment will probably have already started meet and greets, and it is a full-sized Figment again, that it is not, they did not have a little, like, Baby Yoda animatronic mate or anything like that. It's going to be Aww. another fig, full-size Figment meet and greet. So. I'd, I'd like that figment because he had stars where his nipples would be on his shirt for no apparent reason. <laughs> it's very strange. Hey, man, it's the 21st century, whatever's whatever you know, about. right? Exactly. Right. We don't ask. And before was that that's where the um, there was a codec like gift shop there 
before. So you could get your film and your disc cameras and all yeah. your stuff coming off the ride there. Yeah. All right. Uh, Ross, thanks for that. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate that. Next up is Jason. If you recall, and I don't think I've read this. I, I could be wrong, but if I did, we're going to reread it because I think this is fun. Jason was the one that wrote us about him finding him, his dad and his sister oh. in the pictorial souvenir book yeah. at Small World. Uh, he had a couple more fun facts to tell us, and I thought this was a super fun one. He says in 1970, his his dad... Uh, was doing uh, flight training for the U.S. Air Force, and they flew the T-38 trainer jet from Oklahoma to Florida. He says his dad actually got to fly over the construction site of Walt Disney World. He also says that in 1972, two years later, uh, he and his mom honeymooned at Disney World, and they say to the Polynesian, his memory is that it was about $79 a night in 1972. Finally, this one is, speaks to you, Todd. His dad was into lots of filming and editing back then. He says on their trip, he filmed some of the rides as he went through them, but he says it was the most boring film ever, and he vowed only to film with people in the frame after that. Now, here's the problem. He has no idea where this film is now. Oh. I know. Could be some good stuff in there, but all right, we'll let it go. And oh, how wrong he was. Yeah. He's the early the most thrilling piece of film now. In fact, <laughs> Brian's asked for more Jungle Cruise footage, so uh, we wanted to make sure. Never Brian's... have too much Jungle Cruise or Parade footage. Nope, yeah, never too much. One of the one of the rides he did, it says here, was actually uh, some sort of wave machine at the Polynesian. He said it was a boring ride, so he didn't keep the film. That's <laughs> him actually riding it. Uh, just, I'm just kidding, Jason. But he did share a photo of him. Uh, with a character meet and greet that was outside mm -hmm. of Magic Kingdom, like in the area where the security would be now, kind of yeah. there. And he wants to know, they, they don't do that anymore, do they? Like, that seems kind of rare. No, no. They don't do anything like that now. I mean, all of the meet and greets now are controlled and have escorts. and But it was very common uh, outside the turnstiles or at the turnstiles to have uh, characters just kind of hanging out and saying hello and having pictures. And we got that one film footage. Remember Todd from the early years where somebody's awful frisky with, with Mickey. Yes. It right was it, Mickey. Mickey was, uh, he was touching some things. So it wasn't, they got frisky with Miss Mickey. Mickey got frisky with, um, you know, so. do you mean like in front of the flower? Yeah. 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 Teenage girls and a little boy or something like that. So, yeah. Oh, I mean, the characters used to be free range roaming everywhere back in the yeah. day. Like they are at Disneyland still. It's so blew me away. as like going to Disneyland. You're like, Oh, the characters just walk around. Yeah, still. Hey, look, it's Mary Poppins, you know? Oh, really? They do. I didn't know that. They're sequestered in areas here. Yeah, everything now is the line. You know, oh, look, you go there and you get in the line and you wait. We keep them in a cage. Well, it's more of a... <laughs> right? That's what it practically is. <laughs> I mean, think about it. You're getting a fast pass now to, like, meet a freaking character instead of just, like, having some kind of natural thing it, yeah, yeah, Well, a natural interaction. Yeah, yeah exactly. They ripped a ride out for that. Is that... That's mind-blowing to me. Yeah. You know what we're going to do? We're going to rip out this Snow White ride so people can meet princesses. And and think about how much space that is. Anyway. I, I'm well aware. I You know, they, they could have built a simple structure anywhere else. 
that was air conditioned and didn't cost a lot of money to have people meet people dressed oh, up had as a, animated you, characters and you had a giant lake that was drying up and instead we it anywhere <laughs> instead we ripped out a classic dark ride but hey right you know and a perfectly good movie about walt disney but i guess who cares about who walt disney is anymore right eh. yeah he doesn't have a story big chili eater yeah. <laughs> all right and back to the mailbag now. here uh <laughs> Next up, I thought this was a fun fact. Ken Campbell wrote us, and I feel like this one we might have talked about, but we might not have, but I really don't know, Ken. I'm trying to remember here. Um, And we learned a little bit about this on our tour of Spaceship Earth. We're taking it back to Epcot. Uh, Ken actually worked on Spaceship Earth in the 90s. He got to work there with Walter Cronkite and Jeremy Irons. Nice. Not actually them working the turnstiles. But... He does say this. Can you imagine meeting Walter Cronkite? This is Walter Cronkite. Party of two? Please sit down here. <laughs> Please note that the floor is moving. He's just walking. He's one of those people shuffling his feet the whole time. Got yeah. the big it's, record. That's the way you are. Yeah. So You're he tells us, are. which uh, I feel like we learned a little bit of this and a little bit of, uh, I recall, tools. He says the spacers in between the cars are actually audio spacers. And he says yeah. they they supplied the individual audio for two cars, and they were triggered by infrared beams under the track. And he says as the spacer passed over the beams, it was activated the audio. And then... I, I believe, to uh, I think back then it was tape. And how didn't we hear something that they had been converted to some sort of there was a tape no in that thing, tape. like a literal well, like. Look, think about the size of it. There's, yeah, you know, just... if it's carrying the audio. See, this is very different than the way that Horizons was done. This is what's so interesting is that you you totally can tell that different and different way the uh, Living Seas was done and Journey to Imagination was done. Um, and actually, Wonders of uh, not Wonders of Life, sorry, um, World of Motion. World of Motion was, was 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 had speakers along the ceiling of the entire ride, and the speakers changed. No, there's like a the speaker in your car too. But wasn't there a lot of overhead stuff too? Um, maybe I'm just thinking some. Maybe I'm thinking people mover. So, but anyway, uh, just compare Horizons and Spaceship Earth. The two two totally different types of systems, um, but they they provided the same in car experience. Yeah, I mean the original like Haunted Mansion is done with a even a below AM band radio transmitter. And so when you, yeah, so when you hit the spot, it would, it would start transmitting audio. And then eventually I think the horizon system was actually done with infrared light Mm -hmm. versus that, which was a new GE technology. Right. And then, uh, eventually I, they probably, they probably put CDs in, in cars at some point. Yeah. Right. And, And I'm sure today it's all, you know, chips. They're yeah. probably just putting SD cards with audio that's triggered in there. So it's amazing that nowadays you take out all those spacer cars, you could probably increase the capacity for about, by about 10, 20 cars. I don't know how often, or maybe a little less than that. Okay, next up is from Andrew, our last piece of mail. Um, dare I say the last piece of mail before Retro Magic? Oh, but I did there. Um, Andrew actually will say follow directions. Uh, he want, he told us about some uh, cooking they've done at their DVC room. He says, wow. wanted to provide some feedback in regards to your last episode about the Disney Vacation Club. You asked about how much use people use of the kitchen amenities during their stays. 
While I'm sad to report we never did a full turkey dinner during any of our vacations, we would use it occasionally to save money by eating in something simple, whether it be spaghetti or scrambled eggs and toast. We would pack the fridge full of lunch meat to have a quick sandwich when we would come back during midday breaks. It was definitely a nice perk to have a whole condo versus a small hotel room. And my parents were fortunate to buy into it fairly early on versus when they change for contract charge for contracts now. Anyway, I hope this provides some insight and look forward to the next episode. Thank you, Andrew. So we're still looking for that uh, turkey dinner, unique meal, something you've did the craziest meal. So right now, Andrew at the top of the mountain with the uh, spaghetti and uh, some scrambled eggs. So there we go. Waiting on the uh, honey baked ham or something to to be done in there, uh, you know, and, and not a crock pot. I want that oven fired up. You tell us what right. you did. All right, nothing, for... nothing like that studio apartment hitting a five hundred degree oven, opening that up on a ninety degree day, <laughs> having a hot bowl of chili on your your balcony there in July. Yeah, That's... exactly. Well, if you have anything to say to us, whether it be a question, a comment, or anything in between, write us, podcast at RetroWDW.com. We read them all. We try to get as many as we can on the air. And uh, if you write us, there's a chance you could be in this portion of the next show. Thank you. All right, well, it's time for our main topic here. Uh, where, as we said at the top, uh, we're going to be talking about the Mickey Mouse review. Now, I, I wanted to get a little, I, I jokingly, when Hal said we were going to do this, I said, all right, we have to open with explaining the difference between review and review, right? They're homophones in the, in the English language, spelled differently, but pronounced the same way. And people will m- very often misspell review in the way that we're using it tonight so how what is the correct way that we say mickey mouse review how would you spell review so there are two as i said there are two types of reviews there's the review when you're going over something and checking it that's an r-e-v-i-e-w like i'm looking i'm viewing it twice it's a review yeah you're considering it you're looking back on something or giving a critical report yep yeah then, then there's the musical variety where you, you go and you take a bunch of, of songs that exist and you package them together and put them out as a, a new piece of work. And that's in the musical sense. Broadway often had reviews in the mm-hmm. 1920s uh, and that's spelled R-E-V-U-E. And I, I myself have spelled it wrong and have been corrected oh, yeah. on Twitter many, many times. And so... Well, the etymology of the word is interesting because the review that we're using in a sense tonight, U-E, comes from the French word for review, I-E-W, a show presenting a review of current events. So the review is a review, is is what we're getting at. (laughs) So Mickey is reviewing something that he already reviewed. It's a review for the review. So we will end it there. I'm sure there are linguistic experts and and, uh, etymology experts in the audience, and I'm sure they'll weigh in. Uh, on this, just as like uh, our satellite and cable experts will pay as well. So, but how uh, you came up with the idea? This is one of the uh, original attractions, and wow, we haven't done an original traction in a while. Um, and uh, when you mentioned this, I was like, well, yeah, we we have footage of it, not the greatest, uh, but it's got quite a storied history, and and there's some history still in Epcot today. We're going to talk about. So there's a, a lot of a lot of neat stuff to go through here. So. Yeah, I, I went into this thinking it was going to be easy. And, and one of the, the challenges I discovered is 
there's about two or three sort of primary source documents that are out there uh, about this ride, which have literally been used to death on websites and uh, YouTube channels. And that's that's pretty much Mike Lee's Widen Your World website. And then um, Jim Corcus um, has an interview that that he did in a, a page that he put together about Mickey Mouse Review. And uh, like literally almost everything out there uh, is is based on <laughs> those those two things. And so the the challenge for me was to do something that wasn't based on those, although I, I will have. Uh, I will have Brian read a little bit of uh, Jim Corcus's interview because it's it's very valuable to to understand the setup behind this. And, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit of the setup. So uh, this show was the brainchild of a Disney animator uh, named Bill Justice. And, and Bill had a remarkable career at Disney. He, he was an animator. He did stop motion animation besides traditional hand-drawn animation. He painted he did a whole bunch of different things and and at some point he he wound up in imagineering and one of the things that he did uh at imagineering was he was kind of the second guy besides waithel rogers to do uh animation for audio animatronics so he did hall of presidents he did country bear jamboree and he, he was basically like the second expert besides waithel of of you know audio animatronics and and how they work and what they did and how you make them look good. He did pirates. He did the auctioneer and pirates. So very, very experienced with, with audio animatronics. And I guess somewhere along the lines, it's like he got the idea of, of doing a show himself. And he, he felt that there was a gap in what was available as far as audio animatronic, uh, entertainment. Um, so Brian, I'm going to have you, uh, read a little bit of an excerpt uh, and an interview with Walt Disney that kind of sets this up. Yeah, this is a clip from the uh, our recently departed friend, Jim Corcus's book, The Vault of Walt. Uh, he has a section on the Mickey Mouse Review, and he says in the December 31st, 1962 issue of Newsweek magazine, Walt talked about the plans of creating an attraction at Disneyland for, quote, all of the Disney characters so everyone can see them. I have in mind a theater, and the figures will not only put on the show, but be sitting in the boxes with the visitors heckling. I don't know just when I'll do that. Almost a decade later, the Mickey Mouse Review opened at Walt Disney World. And immediately, how? What comes to mind when we hear Walt's description of the attraction? <laughs> yeah, it does. It does sound very much like that and Muppet Vision kind of at the same time, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, Muppet Vision 3D, absolutely, with the heckling in the audience and the, you know, with the beaker and the cannon behind you. And we fast forward about eight years, yeah. right? And and so, uh, and so Bill, you probably thought, you know, I'd like to take a crack at doing a show, someone like that. He felt they seemed to be getting away from their heritage, that Pirates of the Caribbean was a big hit, but what did it have to do with Disney? What we needed was a reminder of what Walt had accomplished. I pulled out a sheet of paper and got to work. Now I'm going to add an editorial comment here. What we hear now is this endless uh, critique that Disney bases all of their attractions on IPs and doesn't do anything original. And it's funny that an original Disney animator was upset <laughs> that they were doing original creative uh, you know, things that were their 
creating a brand new IP with Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion and whatnot. Uh, and he was upset and he just thought that they should be doing stuff with, you know, Snow White and Peter Pan and characters from their films. Wait, I thought the parks didn't have IP all back then. I, I, you know, it's just <laughs> the, 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 it's an endless cycle, I guess. It is, it is, it is. If only Bill Justice had a Twitter account in the, in the 1960s, he could have dunked on, on the studios for... <laughs> attractions like pirates of the caribbean and the enchanted tiki room so he said mickey mouse would have to be the main figure yet some mention must be made of our great animated classics so he sketched all of the characters that he thought should appear and he called upon his modeling skills to build a 1 16th inch scale paper cutout model of what he wanted this was before photocopying machines with reducing capabilities so he had to make all the drawings in scale Many of the figures had to be drawn a quarter inch high. The entire set was about 18 inches long by three and a half inches high. But this model was a good tool for planning the show and experimenting with different scenes. Once he thought he had a winner, it was time for a bigger model. So he recruited some craftsmen and they built a room size miniature theater. About 12 feet wide, Blaine Gibson and his assistants sculpted all the figures to one quarter inch scale from his drawings. Everything worked except for the figures themselves. So lighting, turntables, curtains, soundtracks, all of this was in this room here. And when they were done, he notified his bosses. They invited Roy O. Disney to see the results of his work. The show they had in mind was this, that Mickey would lead an orchestra of studio characters through a medley of Disney tunes then on the sides of the stage and behind the orchestra scenes from their most popular animated features would appear one by one. Mickey and his orchestra would close the performance. Roy looked the model over and paid him the best compliment he ever had in his career. Roy said, this is the kind of show we should spend our money on. And that's how the Mickey Mouse review was born. So there you are. I, I, I think it's, you know, as as much as people talk about the Magic Kingdom being for kids, I really feel like the key to to wrapping your head around this is attraction that it was made by old people for old people. <laughs> and if you look at it through that lens, I think it makes a lot more sense than being something for children, um, because it's all references to movies that kids would not know that 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 adults and especially older adults would fondly remember. Uh, and, and we'll get into all that, but like this, this was not, I I really don't think the show, even though it had cartoon characters, I don't, I don't think this was intended for children. Um, the pace of it was very slow. You know, the colors were very subdued, but let's, let's, let's jump in. (laughs) Yeah. And if you remember when they, you know, back then, the only way you saw these movies, they weren't on television or anything like that. The only way you saw these movies that were some of which were referenced here was if you saw them when they when they periodically released them right and so it was exerting things excerpting exerting uh things that some people may not have like known who the characters were right yeah especially kids they did i mean they did show some of these movies on like the Walt on the Disneyland and Walt Disney presents shows every so often. But I mean, yeah. that would have been, you know, an episode one year. And if you missed it, it's just like missing it at the movie theater. It, it came around once. And if you didn't see it, you didn't see it. 
So when we get to the theater, by the way, there's a little further uh, Bill Justice commentary on the actual design of the theater itself that I want to yeah. comment on. But let's absolutely set more of it up here. So you it is 1971. You are in the Magic Kingdom. You have you know gone around the castle or if you're lucky enough that there's not a show going on. You've gone straight up the middle of it. Uh, you are walking to the carousel. You're hanging a left like you're going to the Pinocchio village house and where Phil Harmagic t- is today is where the Mickey mouse review is. And, and so the outside of the building was very similar, same kind of tent motif with this, you know, a red banner that said Mickey mouse review, a couple of signs on the side and a couple of open doors and turnstiles. And you walked into uh, the first waiting room, um, which was very pink and red and Victorian with a lot of hearts and cherubs in it. It almost looked like a Disney store took over a Victoria's Secret in a 1980s mall. Uh, the colors were very bright and garish and uh, is a lot of I'm going to use the word odd a lot because there were a lot of, I think, odd and interesting choices made in this attraction. And then this is one of them. The walls were Trump Loy painted marble with um, white Mickey statues painted in alcoves representing different stages of, of his career. So Mickey's dressed up in costumes with a little museum style plate underneath each one of these with the name and the year of the short film that his style is taken from in this fake statue. So it's got Steamboat Willie from 1928, Two Gun Mickey from 1934, uh, the band concert, him in his concert outfit, the band leader concert from 1935, him in a polo outfit from Mickey's polo team in 1936. Uh, he's in kind of a, like a the German-Swiss sort of climbing outfit from the movie uh, Short Alpine Climber from 1936, uh, Brave Little Taylor from 1938 in a hunting outfit from the pointer in 1939. Of course, the, the famous saucer Mickey, uh, outfit from 1940 from Fantasia. And then, uh, the sort of the, the piece de resistance is Mickey and Minnie, uh, in this big heart shape with cherubs, like pulling back things around them from the nifty nineties from 1941. And you walked into this room and there was, some background music, but basically it's, you know, you're just standing in this room for eight or nine minutes <laughs> waiting to get led into the next room. Um, and finally, you know, a, a cast member in, in an outfit, usually a lady would stand up and say, good afternoon and welcome to the Mickey Mouse review. The illustrations you see around you depict just a few of the starring roles Mickey has played throughout his illustrious career. Starting with Steamboat Willie in 1928, Mickey has played the leading mouse in one hit after another, including his most famous role in 1949 as the Saucer's Apprentice in Walt Disney's Fantasia. But this afternoon, Mickey dons the maestro's formal coat and tails as the leader of our orchestra, perhaps the most colorful and unusual orchestra you'll ever see. Before the show, you'll enter a pre-show where you'll see a brief movie on Mickey's exciting career and how it all began. Behind the curtain to my left are several aisles. Please move all the way to the end of the aisles, filling in all the available space. We ask you not to sit or lean on the rails. They weren't meant to support the weight of you and your children. How many times did you hear that? Could you please now say all that in Japanese, Hal? Yeah. <laughs> we will get there. We will, we will get there. So that was 
So now you moved into the pre-show and the pre-show was, if you, if you remember Stitch or Mission to Mars or, or any of those shows, you, you walked into a room uh, with multiple rows of railings in front of you. So you would pick a row and then move all the way down to the left and except the railings and the walls and everything were painted this like Pepto Bismo pink. Just (laughs) solid. It is, it is, it is bright. You know, how I, I joke that you would, I joke that you would figure out the, the, like who did the tapestries and the curtains, but I knew you would figure out the curtain color too. Do you have, so have you Pantone matched it for us yet? (laughs) I'm working on that. I work on that. Um, and in, in front of it was uh, this uh, screen, very wide. It's like a super, like bigger than, you know, bigger than 70 millimeter format. It must, I, I'm guessing it was probably like a three projector show where they project them all at the same time. Um, sort of a super wide skinny format. Film ran about eight minutes um, and it was hosted by the soundtrack character from Fantasia who talks about, so if you remember Fantasia, there's this one little section where the jazz, uh, you know, one of the orchestra guy plays clarinet and then this kind of, the soundtrack takes over, which is this animated line, uh, which moves kind of, kind of like a view meter today. Uh, but back then they didn't have that. So they had to animate up that all by hand. Um, and so the soundtrack would sort of talk to you about Mickey's rise to stardom and the innovative use of sound in cartoons. Cause that was, the big deal that was a key differentiator at that time was the you know, use so of sound. You know, Steamboat Willie was the first use of synchronized sound in in cartoons, and uh, you know, Fantasia's Fantasound was one of the first like six multi-track uh, setups. And so, um, sound and music were always a huge part of of Disney's cartoons, which of course plays into you sitting to watch an orchestra in a few minutes. Um, so they played clips from a lot of his shorts. So if you didn't know who Mickey was. This gave you a good opportunity to sort of get an idea of who he was. And they showed steam bits of steamboat Willie and a bunch of his shows. Uh, a lot of times the shorts would be arranged kind of in three rectangles side by side, except there were like these psychedelic colored and patterned graphics behind them. <laughs> I guess to keep it, you know, something, to keep it modern. Something. Hit. Uh, so uh, so it'd be these clips and then all of a sudden there'd be like this crazy 60s thing that'd burn your eyes out and then similar old fashioned clips. But, you know, it's great. It's great. Uh, and the film ends with a bunch of costume characters pouring out of Disneyland's castle because, you know, the Magic Kingdom wasn't open yet, so they couldn't film it. Gotta they dance together. Yeah. And then they eventually make their way out to the hub and they join up with some children. And then uh, the announcer says... Join us in a presentation of the latest colossal effort in Mickey's illustrious career. Mickey Mouse, bigger and better than ever, appears in a completely new dimension, leading his friends in a medley of Walt Disney's musical highlights. So they are hyping you up for this. It's going to be a rock and roll show. Oh, my God. You just wait. This is going to be insanity in a new an entirely new dimension. Um, Only on Sunday, Mickey- Sunday, Sunday. And then Mickey says, and this is a, a Jimmy McDonald Mickey. So I don't know who, who does the worst Mickey. Cause I feel like that's, the, the, I feel like that's the worst Mickey having just heard it again tonight. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrible. Uh, but it, but you know, lovely at the same time, God bless you, Jimmy McDonald for, for being, who was an official voice of Mickey. Yeah. Like 
it wasn't it wasn't as bad as the who's who's the one that was on the slideshows. Oh gosh! Oh, that one Did, was horrible. Didn't we think that was Jack Wagner? Or we did yes, think it was I Jack think, Wagner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That may be the worst one, but it's by it's, far it is the worst. Yeah. It seems weird, and then he says. <laughs> Apparently they dropped the word musical somewhere. That was the original title at one point. Yes. Yeah. And there's, that's actually on the poster too. Yeah. Which is again, a freaking weird poster. The poster for this, and I will send this to us so we can put it in the show notes was designed by John DeCure senior and David Negron. Okay. And it's this weird, like the comps new descending a staircase version of Mickey with like multiple Mickeys because they're trying to get in the idea of animation, I think. Yes. And like the colors, again, the colors are like, there were choices made. Uh, is, I, I think it was attempting to be sophisticated, uh, but it's just, and it's a painting, it's a rendering of the, of the animated figure himself, the audio animatronic figure rather than a cartoon vert. Very, very strange. Well, uh, bef- before we leave the pre-show theater, <clears throat> you should get some of Bill Justice's input on this. Yes. Uh, from Jim Corcus's interviews with him. As the show's theater in Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World was being constructed, someone came up with the idea of having a pre-show. They designed an area just outside the main theater where guests could watch a film on Mickey while they were waiting to enter. Good idea. Except there was a glitch. The theater seated 504 people, but the space available for the pre-show could only accommodate 300. (laughs) Unfortunately, there was no time left to make further changes. It came as a shock when I was told my pride and joy was being moved to Tokyo Disneyland because it never played to full capacity. Of course not. How can you fill 504 seats with 300 people? (laughs) There's always space. Nobody ever goes in. There's always a place to sit. And I think it was, this is when the, this is where it was so long ago. My memory betrays me. I cannot remember if it was legitimate theater seats, which it very well may have been or benches like country bear jamboree. But I think it might've been regular theater seats. So if someone has a clear, distinct memory of that, please be sure to write us and, and let me know. Cause I, I cannot recall. Well, in Country Bear Jamboree, they have to leave you enough room for knee slapping. So <laughs> that's true. That is very true. So uh, so as the kids and characters make their way to the left of the screen, a colorful pink D and ear pattern kind of wipes behind them, which visually leads you to the automatic doors, which open up and allow you to move into the next theater where we get to see the main show. And man, I am ready to go now. This is Mickey in a new dimension. This is going to be exciting and vibrant and vital this is going to be the best thing it's nice because so, it's 96 out and it's air conditioned so yeah, i'm looking forward and that to is that now. is awesome in 1971 just the air conditioning is yeah pretty sweet so it's it's a big theater very tall ceilings uh and just like the mickeys were on the wall kind of like if, if you think of american adventure it's like they had those paintings of mickeys above the doors as you came in and sat down so there were you know 13 rows or so of seats, probably. And then in front, just like Muppet Vision, there were two elevated box seats, theater boxes, that sort of flanked the stage's proscenium. So you'd come in, you'd sit down, and it's like, oh, this is very much, seems like a very fancy theater. 
again, pink, bright, pink, red, uh, colors used there. Um, when you're sitting down, there's these shiny red curtains with Mickey styled comedy and tragedy masks and film strips and metallic gold. So you're like, Oh, this is, this is fancy. Someone spent some money here. Uh, you settle down and I'm sure someone probably told us, you know, not to use flash photography or eat or drink or smoke. And then, uh, you would hear the sounds of instruments tuning up and the, those curtains in front of you would part. And then it would reveal kind of these very muted, dark blue curtains behind it. Uh, and then a shadow of Mickey would appear on the curtain kind of from below aiming up. So it's it kind of big, ominous. And then out of the middle of the stage, Mickey slowly rose on a on a red, uh, red cylinder standing, you know, all of four and a half feet tall. And Bill Justice talked about this Mickey figure in his book called uh, or in a book called The Paradise Program Travels Through Muzak. Hilton, Coca-Cola, Texaco, Walt Disney, and other empires by uh, author uh, Anthony Hayden Guest. Uh, Bill told him, Mickey Mouse is the most complicated figure we have ever had, even beyond Lincoln. He has 37 functions, and Lincoln had 32. The key figure in the pirate ride had 17, and the bears, I think the most complicated of those, has got 24. So, this Mickey audio animatronic has the most functions uh, and by functions, I mean, individual movements. So like a toe tap and I, you know, and I brow blink uh, fingers, like each one of those things is, is considered function. So this is the most complicated audio animatronic they have ever made. And it's only 42 inches high. It's like way smaller than Abraham Lincoln. If you got thirsty, if you got thirsty, it could run out and get you a Welch's grape juice. That's right. <laughs> So he's a little, he's a little girthy and, uh, I'll say the design, they really, uh, they really followed Bill Justice's drawings, I think as closely as they could. And he was doing a lot of character art in the 1970s, but he had a very 1970s take on these characters and the, the look of it, if, you, if for us to look at it today, you're like, that's off model. But that's how the characters were drawn at that point in time. I mean, if if it would be like if they had like it's like Mickey and Minnie's like runaway railway. There are people that like look at that and go like, well, that's not what the character is supposed to look like. But, you know, for the 2000s, you know, that's that's Mickey's style. And for the 1970s, like this was Mickey's style and all the characters style. Um, so the orchestra comes up around him Now these characters are grouped by instrument type and also somewhat kind of based on the movies that they're in, but it doesn't use what you would consider to be a traditional orchestral arrangement of instruments. Uh, and sketches by Bill Justice show a slightly different arrangement of characters than they were finally placed on the show. So I I'm speculating that either Buddy Baker may have made some suggestions to group them based on the arrangements he wrote for the instruments. Um, or maybe just when they set it up at full scale, things didn't look the way that they had anticipated. Um, Daisy was originally supposed to be with Minnie and Professor Von Drake in the string section. She plays cello, uh, so it makes sense for her to be with the strings. But they ended up moving her on the other side of the stage, closer to the brass section in the final version. So something was on there. 
but uh, she does play in the opening like with that group. And we'll talk about how that sort of unfolds. So um, the characters were also on stools, which moved up and down and also would turn slightly left and right. So as they are playing, like they're also raising and lowering in height and turning somewhat, I guess probably to add a little bit more action to it because most of the secondary characters did not have complicated movements. They could raise and lower hands to like play, you know, bring instruments to their mouths and put them down again. But like they didn't blow or uh, I don't know if a lot of them had eye blinks and uh, they were very sort of rudimentary figures because with the number of figures in the show, it had to have cost a fortune and they didn't have a fortune to spend on stuff. So I think they picked and choose, you know, where they would spend their money um, as as best they could with this. So besides Mickey as the conductor in the center in the right first row, you have Huey, Dewey and Louie uh, with pocket trumpets. So they're the brass. And then behind them, you have Monty and Abner from the country cousin, the 1936 Silly Symphony, which I don't know how anybody would know who those characters were. Like those are so obscure characters, but that's who they picked. Uh, then you've got uh, one tier down from them. So next to them, but not connected, is Daisy Duck with the cello. And then right behind. Uh, on, behind them are Ka, who plays his own tail. So it's like his tail comes up and he blows across his tail uh, to make the sound of an alto flute. And next to him is Baloo the Bear, both of them from 1967's The Jungle Book, and he plays a sea flute. So uh, you can hear the differences between them when they go through the opening song. It's like they a lot of they get to like a solos in sections, so you can actually discern what these instruments are. Uh, Dumbo is blowing the tuba, but then Timothy Mouse is up like pressing the valves for him because he can't play it all on his own. So those two work together from Dumbo in 1941. Now on the left side, you've got characters from Winnie the Pooh. So you've got Piglet with a harmonica, Winnie the Pooh playing a kazoo, and Rabbit playing a side whistle. And you can imagine how good that sounds. If you just stop and think, what would it sound like if you heard a harmonica, a kazoo, and a slide whistle together? And you're like, yes, that is exactly what it sounds like. We should have we had some instruments ready tonight because those are all easy to get. We, we, we could have played that tonight. So then uh, on the left second row behind them, we have Minnie Mouse on violin and then Ludwig von Drake playing a tenor guitar or perhaps a baritone ukulele, but I, I think it's actually supposed to be a full-size guitar, and that's just something that Disney tended to do, was use baritone ukuleles or tenor guitars in place of full-size guitars, because a lot of bears in the country bear jamborees play four-stringed instruments instead of six-string instruments. Um, behind them are Jacques and Gus from uh, 1950 Cinderella. Uh, they also are... Uh, co-playing an instrument they've got a trombone gus blows and Jacques moves the slide back and forth which is adorable and then uh from alice in wonderland you've got three characters on one instrument uh the mad hatter the march hare and the dormouse are all in a bass clarinet 
So the Mad Hatter is blowing and playing the upper keys. The March Hare is playing the lower keys and the Dormouse just kind of pops out of the horn from time to time. And so I think to understand like the way the scale, you can kind of get an idea of the scale here. It's like all of these characters are kind of scaled to each other's and scaled to the instruments. Um, then uh, Goofy is playing the double bass. Bode, although in the soundtrack, uh, you can definitely hear someone playing fingered bass. So I'm not sure what's going on there. And then in the back row, we've got the percussion. So you've got King Louis with a with a, either a vibraphone or a, I think it's a xylophone a timpani and a couple other drum kits, pieces of drum kit, which I'm not sure if he plays or not. And then Pluto, who is operating a hi-hat cymbal with his paw. And that's the orchestra. So Todd, you can. Yeah. So this is just, it has nothing to do with this attraction specifically. It's just something that many attractions have had. Uh, you had King Louie playing the xylophone and King Louis playing the xylophone about eight inches above the actual. Yes. Uh, yeah. Or whatever. Are they keys? Would they be? Key? I don't know what they are in a xylophone. Uh, um, yeah. I don't know yeah. what the things are that you hit. I will call them keys. So I've always had this problem with attractions uh, where uh, Spaceship Earth, he's pounding the papyrus. He doesn't touch, yet you hear. <laughs> and he's three inches above. So hopefully there might be some other people out there that have. So. He'd I, wear a hole in it if he touched it. Well, get it a little closer. You can tune that stuff. So at least give me the illusion. But King Louie is so far up. It's like, yeah, a lot of it's these like are. playing the air guitar. Yeah, they're just not there. And I get it back. But you, what's interesting is that you're right. You don't want to touch because there's so many repeated movements that there, there's a wear factor there on, on, on the parts touching. But I've always felt that these types of things could be brought a little bit closer together. Um, to give a little bit better illusion or you you put things that they're um that they're supposedly touching or going to at an angle so the so there's an illusion that they're closer than they really right. are well is that the whole way of in the american adventure when mark twain and ben franklin shake hands it's staged and like their their fingers their hands are still like yeah. inches away from each other right right but it's done in a way it looks like it yeah you you but you're very close to the papyrus man, right? And he's pounding that. Oh, room. yeah, you're right so, on top of him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I felt better about the other spaceship Earth. One. Well, they took him down. The one that was at the top scribing that. Oh, right. Because right. that one worked. You knew he was. But but from a distance, it worked. Anyway, end rant. Um, well, sorry. the trick with that one was that, uh, and they do this in, in situations like that. So, oh, you're right. So So the thing he was holding was actually attached to the to the inside of the column. Exactly. And so when the hand would move up and down, it was actually the, the thing. Col- and, it might right. have been the column moving. And then yeah. when he's using the other, right. When he's using his other hand to like knock, knock, knock it. Yeah. You're right. It's all, it's all in staging. And, but to be honest, his hammer was very far away too. So I, I had, yeah. Well, uh, Michelangelo, I mean, oh, what's he's, going on with that brush? Well, I give, I give that one a little bit because he could be getting ready to do a brush stroke or thinking. Sure, that, sure. That's a like, little more. Hey, I'm a thinking about it. Uh, yeah, exactly. But when you're pounding reed, right? And you're thuk, 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 thuk. There's like, there's like a middle school principal who's making sure that there's a good distance between the kids when they're dancing and they put that person in charge. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's exactly that, right. Yeah. So, okay. Anyway, I, I just had to say that there's, I'm sure there's many other attractions where we can think of where things should be, you know, at no, least a better that's, illusion. That's a very good observation. 
So. Uh, and and likewise, they can't have things too close either, because I, I was right. actually reading uh, this interview with Bill Justice and he mentioned that they can't have like they can't have hands very close to uh, to close either because they would there would be rubbing. So you can't have yeah. things too far and you can't have things too close. Right. So. Right. Yeah, and the, the things would wear out. The clothes would wear out. The right, reds and which which they probably. do anyways. I mean, they apparently have yeah. to replace clothes fairly often. So, and I'm sure they have sewing special patches you know, on the inside where the you know wear spots and stuff. Right. So, anyway, okay, carry on. So, so Mickey spins around and he does a countdown, and the music starts. So we start off with with Hi Ho from Snow White, and as each section takes a solo in the song, it's like a spotlight. You know, the lights darken and the lights spotlights come on to highlight who is playing. And uh, as I said, they kind of work out the arrangements so that way each one of these sections that I mentioned gets a bit of the spotlight uh, through these opening songs so you can get an appreciation of, you know, the kazoo and the slide whistle and the harmonica playing together and a little bit of, you know, the bass uh the double bass and the other things playing together. So you do hi-ho, then they play Whistle While You Work from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. When You Wish Upon a Star from uh, Pinocchio. Uh, Benny takes the violin solo here, which is actually very sweet. Uh, and that fades into Ka blowing across his tail. He's the solo performer in this one, but it is a very... Uh, Buddy Baker, by the way, is the person that orchestrated all this. And uh, man, Buddy Baker loves his alto um, his alto flutes and does some really sweet arrangements for that. So, um, so that part is actually kind of enjoyable in his slower thing. And then they all join in for High Diddle Dee from Pinocchio to end up on a real big up-tempo number. <laughs> and as they finish, they're lowered down into the orchestra pit, and the entire theater falls into darkness. Uh, a white spotlight shines on the curtains on the left with an animated silhouette of the big bad wolf. And creepily... he says, sure is dark in here, right? <laughs> <laughs> a wolf sneaking across the, uh, across the stage, and the spotlight moves from left to right uh, across the curtains and as the sneaking music ends, the curtains pull up and they reveal the three pigs in their brick home and they sing, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? So Practical Pig is playing his organ and the Pfeiffer Pig is playing the accordion and the Fiddler Pig is, of course, playing the fiddle. Uh, they sing the song, lights go out, and on the other side of the stage, the lights go up uh, and you see Snow White, who is holding a bluebird while a doe and a fawn and two squirrels and two quails and four rabbits and a raccoon are all situated around her, the woodland creatures that, that love her and she loves so much, uh, with like a little cutouts of some trees around her on a little a little knoll. And she sings I'm Wishing from, uh, from her movie. And this is the point where we have to talk about the elf in the room with this attraction, which is the weird human characters. Uh, the way the princesses and the humans in this show are depicted as humans rather than cartoon characters. Because for some reason, somebody made the choice to make them 
very realistic. And in fact, like more realistic in some ways than like the pirates and pirates of the Caribbean ever were. It's just weird because you have the cartoon characters are very cartoony and then the humans are like very human, but scaled down and it's strange. Um, so after she finishes, the lights come on and to her left and it reveals the seven dwarfs in their cottage. And Sneezy's playing the oboe, Dopey's playing the flute, Grumpy's playing the pipe organ, Doc is playing the lute, Bashful's on an accordion, Happy's on a mandolin, and Sleepy is on the fiddle. And they play a chorus of the silly song, and then they do a verse, and they do a chorus, and then they do another verse, and then another chorus, which is, I guess it's kind of a long song. They have a big yodel at the end. Uh, the lights fade down on both Snow White and her forest friends and the dwarfs. And then on the far right, opposite stage a new scene appears from alice in wonderland and this this is a big scene i want to say the flowers are probably 25 30 feet tall some of them uh it's really interestingly designed so you've got alice pansies daffodils two tulips two shy violets a white rose a red rose an iris two morning glories a dandelion and a tiger lily and they do two verses very fast of the golden afternoon because it's not a traditional verse chorus song the golden afternoon is like literally at the end of the verse so it's just like two verses in about 30 seconds maybe 45 like this very elaborate set for a very short period of time and then you hear the sound of gunshots as the lights go down which reveals our friends, the three caballeros, Donald Duck playing the maracas, uh, Panchito with pistols and Jose Carioca playing the guitar. And yes, I said Jose because we all got schooled on Twitter uh, this week about the correct, correct pronunciation of Jose being Brazilian versus his versus Spanish, which right. is jose because portuguese he's versus spanish exactly because he's portuguese he's jose he's not jose so we say jose carioca uh and they are standing on their flying serape from uh from the movie the three caballeros and um, although the design of the carpet does not match the one in the movie uh so they start to sing the song three caballeros uh and in the movie of course this is i think one of the highlights of the film and it is like one of the craziest animated things you've ever seen in your life. If you if you have not seen the Three Caballeros, at least find this one small section to watch. Uh, when the old version of the the ride in Mexico, not the original Rio de Tiempo, but the the first version where Donald and and them show up, there's a bit of the energy of this that appeared. Uh, at the end, the animated section at the end in the performance dome. Uh, but this section is crazy in the movie. It is it is one of the most entertaining, like wildly animated things I've ever seen. Totally surreal. And so it's a very high energy thing. And, and so they were trying to get that feel in this attraction. But of course, you're dealing with audio animatronics that, you know, move, but they don't move that much and they're not they're fast but they're not that fast so it's hard to do a real high 
energy paced things with just the audio animatronic figures. So, uh, well, I think that's partly why they did what I think you're going to say next, which is how they had a little animation projected across the screen as if right. they were moving to another side, and then they popped open there. So, yeah, if you watch them three caballos, da, 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 you'd be like, all right, I'm, it's the same thing over and over. Right. So having them and Donald's in one, the other, it works perfectly. It really, yeah, they're, they're trying to get that um, same transformation stuff that happened in the film, but doing it the way that they could, they could exactly. do it in three dimensions. I wanted and to that, mention something else too, that, that you've got that transformation going on and, and the big bad wolf, um, you know, ha there's the projection, um, of the big bad wolf that you mentioned. And there's another projection later on. I think when we get to Cinderella here in a second, for people who say that old rides never had projections to tell the story, you're falsely wrong because this is 1971 <laughs> and projections were being used and they were used at the right spot. Now, they're not to the degree that we have today and three-dimensional all that, but they were indeed used. In, yeah, in, I, I'm, I as mean, a I, solo item. I'm not just talking about like, you know, like the cliff divers at, at the Mexican ride, but, you know. Right. Like, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, one of the great things I think in general about the, the early Disney rides is the amount of stagecraft that was done. I mean, things were very theatrically staged. I mean, at, at a very high level. Um, but there was always this kind of, you know, it, they didn't strive for ultra realism. There was always a, uh, a striving for stylization, really interesting stylization. But is 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 very theatrical in, in in very many ways, and this because that's what they were doing. I mean, they were doing you know dimensional theater, and the people not only not only did a lot of the Imagineers have experience doing this for film, it's like they they did it for stage too. So yeah, they they brought all the sounds with them. So uh, so they're they're singing the, the three caballeros, and and as you said, Todd, they'll do things like. Panchita will shoot his pistol and the stage will go dark and then there'll be a projected slide. Just a single image. Yeah. On And the way that this works is there's a projector that shines against a, a mirror, a disc shaped mirror that has a motor attached to it. And the motor turns the mirror and then you can get the projector to like just project that light very quickly from one side to the other. So it's a single projector and then this little mirror on a on a axis with a, like with a, a motor on it yeah, and it just yeah. goes zoop. And then it looks like the bullets going very fast. So the bullet shoots over to those boxes that were the upper boxes that were on the side. And then all of a sudden, you know, Pinchito and, and Jose are in there. They sing a little bit and then he shoots another bullet and then it goes zinging over to the other side. And then Donald's in there, you know, shaking his maracas and his butt. And then, Another shot is heard and the lights go on and then Donald's over on the, he goes from that side over to the other side. He's on the left yeah. side. Now he's on the right side. Oh my God, this is going crazy. Uh, and I'll tell you, uh, when I was a kid and I went to go see this show, this was my favorite part because after all this kind of slow paced stuff was like, oh, something is finally happening. <laughs> it was very exciting in comparison to the rest of the show. I, I remember thinking, the show was kind of dull and then this happened I'm like, oh, hey, this is it, fun. Finally, it's also put at a point in the show where you need something. A pick yeah, up, right. You know, and you get another one a couple minutes later. It is the show, you know, after the opening and you go through the first two, you're like, OK, I mean, thank God that the, the 
Three Little Pigs is fast, um, but still, uh, yeah, it, you you need it here, and it's, yeah. it's done well. And so, and then they do that one more time, and then Pachito and Jose are on it. So there's multiple copies of these characters uh, on both sides of these boxes, and there's turntables. So uh, the same way that, um, like in Carousel of Progress, there's those turntables on the two sides where they can bring in the different scenes. That's exactly what they did here. So you have the character, they do a turntable, there's another set of characters there, they do a turntable, there's another set of characters, and they can keep it moving and keep it lively, which is which is really neat. And so uh, with one more shot, the group appears together once more time on the carpet, and then Panchito is just shooting like crazy. And you hear the sound of breaking glass, and then they drop back down into the stage. And then we're at such a high fever pitch of energy. I can't think of a better thing to do than just bring it down a notch. And <laughs> we see the fairy godmother <laughs> with Cinderella. And Cinderella, again, hyper-realistic human character. She's in her workmade dress, holding a broom in a bucket. The fairy godmother sings bibbidi bobbidi boo and the fairy fairy godmother has a wand with like a lighted tip, like a couple of incandescent lights to like give it a little bit of a magical wand look. Uh, And then uh, the lights go off and there's kind of this sparkling effect where Cinderella was. And when the lights come back on again, she is in her blue ball gown with her hair done up. And all you can think is, wow, how did they ever do that? when they turn off the lights and then turn the lights back on again (laughs) and something else is there. That's amazing wizardry. As you know, it was like, um, what was it? Oh, in, I think it was around 1988 beauty and the beast on Broadway came out. And I remember listening to a radio station in New York and they were talking about, Oh my gosh, we went to see it. We just can't figure out how, they did the transformation. We just don't know how they did it. It's like there's an arm behind them lifting them up. This is really not hard. And he, I mean, like there's that smoke and stuff goes up. Like it's the other one too. I think it was um oh what what's what's the Korean War uh play? Um Oh Miss Saigon? Miss Saigon, thank you. Not Korean War. Um yeah, so Vietnam. Miss Sa- Vietnam War. Uh, they also, I remember the same radio station at one point. It's like, we just don't know how the helicopter scene is done. We cannot figure it out. It's like, there's a giant arm behind the helicopter. I mean, how do you not figure this out? Right. Trying to Again, get to go see good, good staging and stagecraft. You know, you, and you, you look at things like, um, you know, there's that beautiful effect in the Pinocchio ride in Disneyland where, um, oh no, not Pinocchio. No, there is. There's a nice effect with Pinocchio where he comes to life and the character changes using a pepper's ghost effect and the same thing in poo where like Ooh, poo yeah. comes out of his body Floats out of his body yeah. yeah yeah so i mean it can be done oh it can. if it you can, can guarantee the right angle obviously i don't think they could pull that off with the show so they did the best that they could uh yeah. with the technology they had at the time uh it's a light switch it's good yeah it's <laughs> <laughs> good technology always works only right. two, two, two possible outcomes 100 percent reliable uh and and so she's uh, done her transformation song ends spotlight come hey our old friend the spotlight is back todd and this time uh this time instead of the big bad wolf it's cinderella and prince charming dancing and 
they're not even animated. It's like no. it's literally they shot live action dancers. I noticed that it was very smooth and looked looked yeah. good. Which is interesting because it is quite a departure from the rest of it being animated. The big yeah, wolf and all it's that. so. In some ways, it's a little bit of a callback to two silhouettes from mm -hmm. I think that was Make Mine Music, but oh, right, they right. at least they rotoscoped that right. I mean, it still yeah. looked realistic, but it was you know I guess in some ways it was a little bit of a nod to some. But it is weird yeah. that you're talking about the art of animation and animation and animation, and then all and of then a sudden there's live like, action. That's just live action. Like you're yeah. not fooling me. Yeah, they could have traced over it and made animated cells out of it to give a yeah. little flicker and a little yeah, but something. Uh, and so they play this is love uh, and then there's these project so that's in the middle and then there's these projected like stills of hearts on the side to like fill up the side space which is again a choice a choice uh, the spotlight turns off and then it turns on quickly and you've got Br'er Fox and Br'er Br'er and Br'er Rabbit we don't have instruments uh, apparently they're the only non-musical characters in this entire cavalcade uh, they're on stage, right? And they sing a very sprightly version of zippity doo uh, And as they are singing this, uh, this is it. This is the big conclusion. So the entire cast comes on for the finale, as tends to be the, the, the motif with so many Disney shows. Oh, it's the end. Bring everybody out again. And now you yeah. can take your flash pictures. Uh, and, and since it's post Cinderella and Prince Charming dancing, the turntable has moved one more time. And now Cinderella and Prince Charming are together where Cinderella was just by herself up in that section before. So they had to blow the money on building a realistic Prince Charming for the like 30 or 45 seconds that this is on just for continuity's sake, which is great, which is great. Thank you for doing that. Uh, Zippity Duda ends uh, and then the group sings the M-I-C-K-E-Y part of the Disney, uh, the Mickey Mouse alma mater theme song. The orchestra and the other cast members retreat, re uh, retreat to their pits and behind their curtains. Mickey stands in the spotlight by himself and he laughs and he says, thank you, folks. This concludes our show. No kidding. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. And then he does a little Mickey laugh, kind of like Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> and then the curtains close on him. And then so that is the end of the Mickey Mouse review. I have a question for JT. JT, you and I... Uh we were in the carousel progress once and, and you, you had a little bit of a snooze there. Would, would oh you, yeah. Would, would you utilize this for a little respite? You know, it depends on what part of the day it is, but yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, we were going full go that day and I was like, yeah, this is a good spot to nap. Totally. All right. Yeah. yeah. And then as the doors open up to exit, they play a, a, a specially composed medley of Casey jr. Mickey mouse club March. You can fly, you can fly, you can fly and a spoonful of sugar. Um, which you can actually find on a Tokyo Disneyland music album from 2001. Which Interesting, I guess, a spoonful of sugar, because that's not the animated part of the movie either. But. No, but it, so again, my this is it's a review. It's a review. It's a review. These are what are the best. And I, I really think they thought what are the best known Disney songs yeah. that people have heard that they can relate to. Let's let's put them all in there. And this particular song uh as as also happens with a lot of the stuff like the original version of the carousel progress when it ends it's like this crazy 1970s wah-wah guitar rock thing
<laughs> that they do because that's how they tend to end a lot of like, oh, well, not only are we old, we're also very contemporary. So we want right, to let right. you know how contemporary we are. We're hip. By making something that sounds nothing at all like actual rock and roll. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we want to do something that sounds like a 75-year-old's version of what they think rock and roll sounds like. Right, right. Um so that's that's the Mickey Mouse review. Now there was some merchandise that came out for this. Uh it wasn't Squeaky Mickey though, remember? No. no. We got Squeaky yeah, Mickey Cotton, Cotton Jumper. Jumper. <laughs> Cotton Jumper. That goes back to about episode what? One, two, three, somewhere in there. It's the early days. Back Fem- catalog. Femora memorabilia, yeah. But yeah. they should have. You know, if there was a if there was any reason to come up with a Mickey Mouse figure, that would be it. That would it well, okay, so Let's talk a little bit about ephemera because uh, a souvenir is back when my grandparents visited Walt Disney World. And I want to say it was 75 they went for the second time because I was born and they bought back a gift for me. They did have this, uh, they bought back two little Mickey Mouse figures and a Minnie Mouse figure. Now it wasn't, he wasn't dressed up in a tux, but they did have right. figures by that point. Was it the, uh, the uh, ceramic kind? No, they were little PVC rubber. Oh, okay, and, okay. With movable legs and arms, and the head would go back. For, I still have them somewhere. Nice. Uh, I think I only have the Mickey one left. Like, uh, but um, I remember my grandmother many years afterwards. Uh, Whatever happened to the Mickey Mouse review? Whatever happened to it? So how you have to answer them. Grandma's oh, not yeah. with us we'll, anymore. But what happened we'll, to it? We got to we'll, get we'll into that. We'll get there. Well, let me, do, let me run through a couple of these other things, and then we'll get to yeah. where... What happened? So perfect. You could pick up uh, a little golden book. Oh, look at called that. "Surprise for Mickey Mouse," and this this book is all about how Mickey gets a letter that uh, that he's going to have a show at Walt Disney World, and he's in he, a telegram. They get him a telegram. Wow, fancy, right? That's urgent. That's it's the urgent. Way to get it. Yeah. yeah. It, is it good news? Oh, it's great news, says Mickey. Walt Disney World is going to have a Mickey Mouse review. And guess who's going to direct the orchestra? You are, laughed Mickey's nephews. That's right, Mickey said proudly. I'll, I'll press your best dress suit, says Morty. And I'll get the I airplane just... ticket, says Ferdy. I don't know how Ferdy, being like seven, is going to buy the airplane tickets, but hey. Well, you know, there was no TSA. There weren't any background checks. It's, he's right. fine. And, and uh, by the way, I just want to let everybody know this is how we got... Uh, let all of our VIPs know they were invited. We Brian sent telegrams, Western <laughs> Union, to everybody, and we I, had them read. It well, said, "You are, yeah." They look at the pictures. I oh, want yeah. you to look at this Minnie Mouse. Oh my God, she looks like she's taking something for some she's, reason. And she's she hit running the away with a little hard. <laughs> really, they drew like human lips on Mickey Minnie Mouse during this time period. Why did they do that? <laughs> I don't know. And look that at her was, eyes are all spaced out. Yeah, that was the style. She just rode Space Mountain. For whatever reason. <laughs> and so for the rest of the duration of this book, people are just being absolute jerks to Mickey. Because he's like, hey, I got this great news. I'm in the show. And they're like, yeah, whatever. That's fine. Because really, they're all in on it. And they don't want to let him know. But they're basically just like douchebags to him because every time he goes to tell somebody like, hey, I got this great news. I'm going to be in the show. They're like, oh, yeah, that sounds great, Mickey. La, la, la. And so Mickey is like really bummed out. And by the end of the book, he's like really sad. He's on the airplane and he's completely melancholy. And while everyone else is excited, 
Uh, and then they brought dogs on planes back then too. Huh? They did. Pluto just gets to ride right up front. Yeah. So they get there and then there's this big ass sign out in front of the castle that says Mickey Mouse review this way, which is totally realistic. And then he finally gets on the very like second to the last page. He finally gets to the theater and he finds all of the people that were being mean to him are actually part of the show too. And they didn't want to give away the surprise. And then Donald falls into a, uh, into a bass drum, which is nothing like the show now at all. Uh, and, and that's the hilarious end of that book. Um, there was also a, um, a Whitman press out book for the Mickey Mouse review. So it's one of those things where you sort of like push out the characters, then you could set them up dimensionally. But it was just character. It was like characters from the show, but like not in the context of being in the Mickey Mouse review. They had like backgrounds, like just from their movies, but you could set them all up together. So it was weird that they would make the merchandise, but not actually make it like the show. And then and there was also a a LP. So, you know, remember, like I I had the Tiki Room LP when I was little and the Country Bears LP and the. Hall of Presidents LP. So you'd think, oh, they must have a record of the Mickey Mouse review that you could buy. Uh, No, there (laughs) there was a record that came out this year, that year called Mickey Mouse. This is my life. It had songs from the pre-show and the main show, but not the actual soundtrack. It's like they just went and got like, oh, we play I'm Wishing from, you know, Cinderella. So let's go get that from the soundtrack and like put that on there, but not the version that's in the show itself. So it's very, very weird. Um, bizarre. Um, found some good cast member stories from, uh, from when the show was, was open in Florida. Uh, a guy named Larry Laurie says one day Mickey rose up in front of the curtain. He turned from the audience towards the curtain and his hand fell off and the red hydraulic oil sprayed all over the curtain, (laughs) full house, lots of crying kids. (laughs) then the animation folks got up there and the crying really began as they tried to figure out how to clean up the curtain i think it was closed for at least one additional day so could you imagine mickey doing the saturday night live julia child thing now i've done it i've cut the dickens out of my finger well i'm glad in a way this happened you know accidents do gentleman named Larry Ball says he remembered working on the Mickey Mouse review. And one time Mickey was coming up to direct the orchestra. He bowed to the crowd and his head fell off. And he said, you should have heard the screams from the kids. <laughs> so apparently that was, that was <laughs> that things happening like that is not just a modern phenomenon. It happened, used no. to happen in the old days too. Yeah. Everybody it, didn't have a phone camera on them. Right. Yeah. Right. Recording everything just therapy for years afterwards. Mm-hmm. And then um, the, the cast members that worked the ride, they figured out that they could sit in the, um, in the office right behind the Mickey Mouse review and hear the show from there. So they wouldn't actually have to wait out in the theater with you. The cue to get back up and, and, uh, and to go out to get ready to get guests, the exit was when the Cinderella song played. So when you heard the Cinderella song, you, you got up from the back talking to your friends and you got out and you got ready to, 
Um, so, so they had to sit the through zippity doo like the whole thing, the whole huh? time. Oh yeah. man, you had to be ready. So I think the cue would be when zippity doo. Anyway, yeah. So uh, well, you got to get to your podium right because if you're not yeah. on your podium when that spotlight turns on, that's yeah, bad it looks show. Rather odd. That's yep, bad show. It is. It is, it is. Uh, so uh, Mickey Mouse review closed uh, September 14, 1980, a day that will live in infamy. Uh, why, why, what happened? Uh, so, uh, what we know is, you know, we, we had what Brian said. Um, the reality is that, uh, the Oriental land company came and did an assessment of all the attractions at Walt Disney world that they wanted to have, you know, in their Tokyo Disneyland. And they felt very strongly that uh, Mickey Mouse Review was a show that they needed to have in Tokyo. I mean, it's it's the premier show. It's the number one thing. It's it's the thing you got to have. But um, there was a deadline to get Tokyo Disneyland opened. They're in the middle of constructing Epcot at the same time and building all the shows for Epcot. And there just isn't enough time to fabricate a new show and, and possibly money, not enough time, not enough money to, to get a new version of this made for Tokyo Disneyland. And it's a, it's a deal or no deal. It's like, if we can't have Mickey mouse review, it's off. We want this that much. And so the decision was made to close the show, strip it, send it to Glendale, refurb it, and then pack it up again and send it off to Tokyo. And wow. so that's what they did. And and so Mickey Mouse review was gone. It, it's it's important to note for I don't know if you pronounce it kawaii or kawaii, the Japanese cute culture. Yeah, I think it's kawaii. Mm-hmm. Kawaii that took yeah. off after, you know, post-war in the 50s and in terms of merchandise and these cute cartoon representations of things and there is a terrific uh display educational display on it in the japan pavilion in epcot uh if you're there next time make sure you don't just go into the department store but go into the display area to see it and that would be one of the main reasons why they were like we have to have this yeah and and you were telling me i I, you were reading from something where bob matheson was like he was mad so Bob Matheson, uh, who at the time would have been vice president of operations at the Magic Kingdom, but he's one of the guys that was trained in Disneyland and came and helped open Walt Disney World Resort and was a key executive uh, until he retired in 1994, made a Disney legend in 96. Anyway, uh, he and in, in Jim Corcus's book, he mentions that uh, Bob Matheson uh, told Dave Koenig, Dave Koenig, right? He writes a bunch of Disneyland books. Uh, that the removal of Mickey Mouse review from Magic Kingdom was a very big fight. They screamed like crazy on that one. It was a very popular attraction, and it was so much of their culture. It was what people really loved, but they didn't have time to build their own, so they had to take the one from Florida. <laughs> and uh, so they you know, disassembled it and shipped it over to over there. And when it opened, by the way, it was an e-ticket attraction, in magic kingdom and by 1980 it had been downgraded to a d ticket attraction even that seems a little i, I would have guessed c but 
Well, I mean, I, I guess as you opened Pirates and Space was, Mountain and... Right. Yeah, it's, a compa- it it's a comparison thing. Right. Yeah. Like it's air conditioned, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was during that period of time when tastes were kind of shifting within visitors and they were expecting more thrills and more excitement. And 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 if you remember, I know we've probably touched on it in prior podcasts, but that Sully Sullivan is, you know, who was also at one point a vice president of all the parks. And he he said that's why they did away with the tickets uh, when they opened Epcot, because you had these sponsors sponsoring these attractions and everybody wanted to sponsor an e-ticket. And so when you tell them like, well, no, you're sponsoring that, like this one's going to be a C ticket. They, they felt like, well, it shouldn't cost me as much as Kodak's paying for its e-ticket <laughs> journey into imagination over there. So, so yeah. So their solution was to do away with the ticket books altogether and go to a one price ticket, which I think last time I checked was $372 a day and a kidney now. <laughs> To get into the parks. Uh, so, so it's in Tokyo. It, it plays in Tokyo into uh, 2009. So it had, a, it had a good run there. Ironically, um, it was also replaced just, just like today. Philhar magic is in that space. Philhar magic is in that space in Tokyo as well. Of course, we had a few other shows in between. We had magic journeys. We had the legend of the Lion King. Uh, but, uh, it is really kind of nice in a way that uh, Mickey's Philhar Magic is in very many ways the modern incarnation of the Mickey Mouse review. Same mm-hmm. basic concept of of a character sort of leading everybody through a, a retrospective of Disney music featuring the characters. So it's funny as much as things changed, you know, things kind of ended up right back at the beginning of where they were. You know, one of the things about this attraction was that it was the only Mickey Mouse attraction. Disneyland didn't have one, correct? Yeah. There was Mm -hmm. no attraction in Disneyland with Mickey Mouse in it. So it was a big deal that Mickey was in this attraction. And aside from his cameo when Waldo's impersonating him and, and and when they drop him into stuff at MGM studios, little film clips where he's, where he's doing custom things. He really wasn't in another attraction until they, I mean, I remember that was the big deal when they announced Mickey and Minnie's runaway railway was, he was finally going to have a, an attraction again, such as it is. Uh, now one place that did have nice merchandise was Tokyo. And, and in fact, um, they're doing a similar program to like the 50th year. They're doing like a 40th. And they just came out with a uh, uh, a version of that curtain, the like Mickey, like uh, the comedy and tragedy curtain that you can put in your own house that is of the same style printed on polyester. And I don't know what the market is for that, but it's amazing that they would come out with that. I, at first, I thought it was like a shower curtain. But it's actually the warnings. I translated the warnings on it. And it's like, you can't let it be wet for too long or I guess the dye comes off. So uh, I don't know where else in your house you would use a curtain like that. But I thought that was pretty cool. Well, that they Clearly on your stage. Right. Exactly. Or between the dining room and the kitchen. You know, you can just go through mm-hmm. food, come back through. That, you know, draped walls were a yeah. thing and still are in some places where, the you know, you just have the, the drapes along the wall. 
That's true. That's true. More, so, um, and this this uh, attraction also has a little bit of a legacy. So characters were pulled from these molds and used in several other attractions in different parks over the years. Um, allegedly, the Alice in Wonderland at Disneyland uh, has several characters from this. Um, the post rehab Snow White's Adventures at Disneyland at Walt Disney World uh, had the dwarfs from there and even today like some of those dwarfs from seven dwarfs mine train are pulled from those same molds that were developed for uh for the mickey mouse review the audio animatronic mickey currently resides at the walt disney archives uh, he was put on display at the d23 expo in 2011 and three of the many animatronics of donald uh jose and panchito were at this point, not so recently put on display. Oh, sorry. They were put on display at D23's Destination D in the 40th. And then in 2015, they were redressed and placed into the finale of the Epcot Grand Fiesta Tour uh, after it was refurbished. So v very excellently, too, by the way, because if you were going, mean, that was in the era of Disney Twitter when we were all kind of there. And it was one of those things where that attraction, when you got to the end, they were there was a film of them, you know, and then just one morning somebody went on the ride first thing and suddenly the, the film had been replaced with the three characters from Mickey Mouse Review. It was a it was an unannounced uh, like plussing. And yeah, it's and so neat when I when I ride by them every time I just look at them and think, wow, they were they were here in 1971 doing yeah, that stuff. And they did and, up they did upgrade them a little because the original characters, uh, those in particular, it's like they were just flat. They didn't mm -hmm. have and and they redressed them with like feathering. So they feathered them they, where they weren't feathered. They before. did, but I do recall. I don't know if it was Jason Grant or who uh, said that they, the guts of the animatronics are the nineteen seventy one originals. That that's how well built and how wow. well they held up and were maintained that they did not have to put new animatronics or anything in there. Like that is the, that is the, the originals there. That's great. And I think those are all, I'm trying to remember for those particular animatronics were built in Florida or if they were built at Maypo in California, they might've been built in Florida. So well, well done guys. So, yeah, you know, uh, fondly remembered, uh, but not forgotten for sure. And I thought this was going to be a quick episode, and it certainly did not turn out to be a quick episode. Well, all, we got so. into satellites, and anytime you get into satellites <laughs> and cable TV hijacking, like God knows where it's going to go. Yeah. So thank you, everybody, and I hope you enjoyed the show. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Hal, for putting that all together. Um, I know this is a fun look back at something like this. I think we've been talking about doing this episode for, for years. So like I said at the beginning, it's fun to go back to an opening day attraction and Still being able to see a little bit of it left today. Um, as we mentioned also in the beginning, Retro Magic is coming up. And for those of you attending or those of you that may not be able to attend but are going to be in the Orlando area, JT, you have uh, a, a, an adventure that, we're, that we've partnered with for this, uh, this, this uh, event. Yeah, so, I mean, what's cool is, I guess, you, you kind of just sort of said something I didn't think of. I guess if you're, you know, looking to participate in the, the events of the weekend and you didn't get your, your ticket or something like that, or if you are coming and you want to participate in Mouse Adventure, 
which uh, their website's mouseadventure.com. They have created a Walt Disney World-based scavenger hunt. Uh, you get some friends together. They got trivia. They got you running all over the place. Uh, it's going to be something else. Vintage stuff, retro stuff all in there. They're going to be set up with us Saturday uh, throughout the day. We'll give you more details when that comes out. But to get started, check out mouseadventure.com. We're working with them on this uh, fun little add-on uh, that they wanted to uh, bring to the weekend. So Awesome. Thank you very much for doing that. All right. Well, as always, we thank all of our listeners. If you can give us a shout out in iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. And as always, you can support us at going to lbvhistory.org forward slash donate and also check out retrowww.com forward slash support us. We'll take you to our online T public store for all those great designs that Howe and others have done for us. So uh, Howe, I'm sure after we get through all the retro magic art you're working on. We actually, we actually have a new one. Uh, the Dolphin Resort. It was whose suggestion was that? Was that yours, JT? I we were talking about. I think Brian. It was a group effort. Probably. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know who had. I, I yeah. I I think it was JT's idea of like, hey, let's revisit some of the legends. And so, uh, one of the legends that we love is that the those black squares in the Swan and Dolphin Hotel are for monorails to go through. <laughs> no, that's the station. Was it like it was going to go? Or was it going to shoot out of it? Yeah, like it was- it's yeah. You would stop there. <laughs> hundreds of feet in the air and you'd get in the monorail and and then if if it ever broke down outside i don't know what you would do but well, well they left it black too because they just didn't you know right right <laughs> so what what i did is i looked at the um the old there's uh, there was this logo for the contemporary hotel that was from the 1980s that has the 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 monorail coming out of the contemporary and basically redrew the dolphin resort in that style of with the monorail coming out of it. So that's that's at our T public store now. It is that contemporary hotel take on the the Dolphin Resort uh with the it, monorail coming right out of the middle of it. So That's um, a deep cut. That's I mean, you you could wear that shirt and and be a, a dolphin or swalfin fan and people would be like, "What's going on there?" if they even notice it and you could keep that legend going. Just be like, you know, the monorail used to come through here. All right. Well, Thank you, all our listeners. Appreciate it. And uh, we will be back next month-ish after Retro Magic with a new episode. Uh, Thanks for listening. And with that, Brian, take us out. Follow the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society on Twitter and Instagram at LBV History and on the web at lbvhistory.org. For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com and on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at RetroWDW. And follow our hosts, Todd McCartney, on Twitter at WDWMS, Hal Bowers on Twitter and Instagram at GoAwayGreen, JT Couser on Twitter at LS1JT and on YouTube at Rubber City Motoring and on the web at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brian P. Miles. Retro Disney World is the monthly podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society, a nonpartisan, nonprofit, tax-exempt 501c3 organization and is not affiliated in any way with the Walt Disney Corporation or any of its subsidiary or affiliated entities.